to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, crisis, uh, change, um, right now, COVID-19, and anything that's relatable to those subjects. Uh, Speaking of different subjects and topics, uh, if there is something you'd like us to talk about on the show or you'd like to be on the show, please feel free to go to the Voice America webpage. Uh, for uh, the show, at underneath the graphic, there is a button that says something to the effect of send email a host or a note. Uh, please feel free to do so. I get all messages and I do respond to everything. And we'll see about getting you on the show or finding someone to talk about the subject you'd like us to hear. Uh, and if you would like to promote a product or service related to disaster recovery or business continuity, you can reach me the same way. I'd like to remind everyone I will be speaking at the Continuity and Resilience Today conference, October 7th and 8th in Toronto this year. I will hopefully, fingers crossed, be doing another live broadcast, our third one, from the Disaster Recovery Journal conference in Phoenix this year, September 28th to 30th. And I will also be speaking at uh, BCI World in Birmingham, UK, November 5th and 6th. Now, fingers crossed all of those uh, events go forward, um, considering where we are right now as the time of recording. But uh, hopefully I'll see you, uh, some of you at those events. You will see me walking around with a handheld recorder. If you've listened to the show uh, more than once, you have probably heard me say that I am an avid reader. I love reading uh, all sorts of books for pleasure and to enhance my own knowledge and skills and just something that piques my interest. So today I have uh, the authors of a book that uh, I happened to see on a uh, online uh, seller and I went, oh, I like the title of that one. Let, let's look into that. Read the book and knew I had to reach out to the authors. The book is Crisis, uh, sorry, You're It. Crisis, Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most. And I'd like to welcome to the show the authors of that book, Lenny Marcus and Eric McNulty. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Alex. Happy to be here. And I, I'm uh, happy to have you here. I know you, you're you quite uh, busy. I've checked out uh, your website, and you're going to tell me a little bit about that in, uh, as we go forward. Um, with our guests that are out there, now I know I've done my homework and know who you are, but um, could both of you take a minute or two and just kind of uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? And why don't we start in um, alphabetical order? Eric, why don't you go first? Thanks, Alex. I'm Eric McNulty. I am the Associate Director of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard. We're a joint program of the T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Kennedy School of Government. And there I'm involved in research writing, teaching, 
uh, learning more about crises, leading through crises, and what it takes to be effective in really challenging circumstances. So that takes us into applied neuroscience, organizational behavior, lots of different areas to better understand what mm-hmm. it takes to lead when it matters most. Uh, I've been at Harvard for 20 years at the business school before I came to this program, so I understand a bit about the private sector role in disasters as well. And I'll let Lenny give more detail on the background of the program because he's been here since the very beginning. I joined this program in 2008. Lenny? Well, uh, thank you, Eric. So, uh, uh, Lenny Marcus, I've been at Harvard for 25 years uh, teaching uh, negotiation and conflict resolution. And in uh, right after 9-11, was approached by the federal government, U.S. federal government, um, to establish a leadership platform at Harvard along with David Gurdon, uh, who's the director of the Center for uh, Public Leadership at the Kennedy School of Government. Uh, at the time, uh, shortly after 9-11, we uh, established the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative with the objective of first studying leaders in crisis, and then taking that research, the best practices and the practices that could be improved, and then um, uh, developing a curriculum at Harvard uh, for executive education uh, that we've had ever since. Um, we're proud to have over a 1,000 graduates uh, of that exec ed program, and we're continuing to provide um, crisis leadership uh, poor and advanced uh, programming um, at Harvard, even through... Uh, these different difficult times through the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Well, you you must be quite uh, busy uh, right now with uh, email questions and phone questions, considering we're in the middle of COVID nineteen right now. Well, that's true, Alex. And you know, one of the things that we decided way back when uh, when we established the MCLI was that um, it would be our objective not simply to study um, crises from afar, but also to embed with leaders in the midst of the crisis as they're leading through these crises. So uh, back during Hurricane Katrina, um, I I was fortunate to be able to literally uh, sit with uh, Mike Brown uh, down in Louisiana as he was leading uh, through that crisis. And likewise, Eric and I uh, were down in the Gulf. Um, It was a Coast Guard during um, the the, uh, Gulf oil spill. Uh, we were with uh, Dr. Rich Besser, um, who was the acting director of the CDC during H1N1. Uh, and then one of our colleagues, uh, Rich Serena, was deputy administrator of FEMA. And uh, Eric and I, as faculty, were with Rich during the Hurricane Sandy in New York, New Jersey. Um, and we're fortunate right now to have Rich Serena on our faculty at the MPLI. So just as we were studying leaders close up, uh, in, in those events, we're continuing to do that now during the COVID-19 response. So it, it sounds like a lot of the people that go through your course, um, you don't just kind of, uh, you know, here's your certificate, thanks very much, handshake, off you go. You're there for ongoing support, both of you, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we, we are. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Gary. Absolutely. We have... Uh, we stay in touch with people. It's, it's how, part of how we get the entree to do our research in terms of being invited into the field, the incidents that Lenny talked about. We're with them. And then to stay with them. So during the coronavirus outbreak, we've been on with a group of alumni every week. Um, that's an optional call, obviously, but they call in and tell us what's going on from where they're sitting, what their needs are, what they're 
uh, observations they're having, what kind of tools they're looking for, and there's a lot of sharing of, of resources and best practices just across the network on that on that informal call. But uh, we think of the MPLI as an extended family, and, and once you join the family, you're you're part of the family. And so uh, we're with folks all the time. That's good because you know a, a lot of courses um, around the globe. You know, once you do get your handshake and certificate, off you go. That's it. You're on your own. So it's really good to know that, uh, you know, with your course, there is that uh, additional support or even, you know, can bounce ideas off of, which I assume people do as well with you. So that I, I find that really interesting, uh, you know, something you don't hear about. And especially at times right now, because a lot of leaders, we really didn't think uh, that things would be this way. We thought of floods and fires, you know, so this has got to be quite the challenge for, for yourselves and for, you know, the, the people that you're working with. Alex, you're right. Um, having a community of people, first, who all know the language that we teach um, um, through our NPFI executive classes, and um, who are committed to excellence and leadership. To have a community of people like that who can provide peerage to one another, who can be peer support systems, and then um, uh, every week when we get together, we all learn something new uh, because we have people on the call, not only from across the United States, uh, but from Canada, uh, New Zealand, um, Italy. And, and the call that we had this week, for example, uh, someone was talking, uh, one of our uh, current students was talking about um, in, in his locale, they have COVID-19, but they're also dealing uh, with a significant flooding uh, scenario: People are being evacuated. Uh, uh, interruptions in the supply chain. In the supply chain. So, uh, it, it, you know, we're all learning uh, from one another, and it's all oriented towards best practice and crisis leadership. I guess one of the challenges with crisis leadership, too, especially concerning what's going on, is I, I mentioned that a lot of leaders we think of what we need to do when there's a fire or what we need to do when there's a flood, but when you start expanding the scope of that, like COVID-19, it's got to make it even tough for, you know, uh, Lenny and Eric, both of you, it's got to be tough for you to even think about, okay, how do we keep a level head? Because every single day there's a new impact we hear about. Well, I think that's one of the real challenges here, um, Alex, is that this is the first crisis in our lifetimes that has touched literally everyone at the same time. So you just there for the fire, with the flood, with the hurricane, it affects a certain geographic area, and you can move resources in and out. Um, this one is a global pandemic as well as a global economic meltdown as a result of the pandemic. And so we are learning new things, novel virus. And so one of the challenges for leaders is to, is to stay calm, although I think that those who are doing best they are making evidence-based decisions. They're letting the, the, the data drive them as they learn more about what's happening. But they're also thinking two, six, 12 months out to say what's likely to happen next. Where might, how might this unfold and how do we get ready for that? And when you're in that problem-solving mode, you're looking forward. You are, you're beginning to create some certainty because you're building a scenario in your head. Hopefully, you're sharing it with your team. And you're beginning to tee up what decisions are we going to need to make? What kind of actions are we going to have to take? What resources will it require? And you begin to build some certainty in there, which helps mitigate the chaos. What are your recommendations? Because you mentioned, uh, you know, staying calm. 
from both both of you mentioned you know, at the beginning of the show the different things you've been involved with and the different people you're working with. How do you recommend people stay stay? What's your advice? I shouldn't say how you recommend. What's your advice for uh, people to stay calm under some of these situations, especially if you're in a leadership role? Well, it's um, um, a good question, Alex. And, and there, there are two things. One of them professionally, and how do you understand uh, what's, what's going on? And, you know, we have a whole series of what we call the meta-leadership tools. And uh, in terms of, um, of COVID-19, we, um, we discovered this, this phenomenon when we were studying the hurricanes in 2017, because first there was Hurricane Harvey, um, then Hurricane Irma, Jose, Maria, they came right one after another. Um, and uh, we were studying them both in Washington. Um, I embedded with uh, Brad Kaiserman, the, who was the Vice President for Disaster Services at the Red Cross, Fritz Serino and I uh, were down in Texas uh, meeting with people on the scene. And then, of course, another hurricane hit. And what we, what we observed was there was like an arc of time. You can imagine the arc in St. Louis, where at the beginning of the event, there's a lot of activity. There's a huge threat, and it, things happen very, very quickly. And then you get to the peak um, of that activity. And then, you know, after that, things begin to recede. You go, you go down that arc of time, you know, after the, the height of that event uh, occurs. So we've taken that notion of an arc of time and applied it to COVID-19 because if uh, leaders recognizing that they're moving through an arc, um, in that beginning period, you're going through a whole set of transactions, you're getting things moving, at the very top, the apex of the arc, uh, you start seeing things level off, and then there's that transition as you're uh, going down uh, where you're able to pull back uh, some of that initial activity that you had early on. So if you think of COVID-19 in terms of the arc of time, uh, right now we're in May 1st. We've been through that first arc uh, with shelter-in-place uh, here in the United States uh, in, in many states. Um, that shelter in place, those orders are beginning to be lifted. So we're going into the next arc of time. We're transfer- transforming into that next arc of time, transitioning to the next set of activities where there are limited shelters in place. Um, we, we, we provide that to leaders as a guide because where you are in each arc of time will help you understand where you need to be focusing your activities. And um, as Eric said earlier, you anticipate what comes next, uh, and you start planning for what comes next. So a manager is dealing with what's happening in the right-now moment, whereas a real leader is looking, well, what, where are we going to be two weeks from now and making sure that when we get to that point, we're ready for whatever it might be. So if we look, in, now if we look at overall what's going on in COVID-19, um, we could have known back in January that we were going to need a lot of testing kits. We could have known back then that there was a need for PPE, for masks, etc. Um, mm-hmm. So the responsibility of the leader is to anticipate those needs and then work in anticipation of those needs to get that ready. So when we get to that point in the arc of time, we are prepared for it. So first off, it's possible for leaders to understand that arc of time. And another tool that we offer uh, the people in our, in, our, in our training and we write about in the URS book is this notion of going to the basement. You know, if you're in that panic mode, what's often called the reptilian brain, 
uh, you go to, we, it's what we call you go to the basement. And so it's important for a leader to recognize that they've gone to the basement and to get up into their toolbox, um, to get oriented to what's my to-do list, what do I need to do and in, to get my brain focused, uh, how do I get my team focused. So that's one element, it's a tool uh, for taking care of yourself as a leader. Because as, as Eric just said, it, it's not simply that you're handling somebody else's crisis. Each of us um, is having our own family, personal uh, crisis through this, as well concerns about um, becoming ill. So being able to have that guidance as a leader and being able to have that understanding of the personal experience through the crisis, those are really important things. And I think that's a perfect uh, spot to end our first segment. And we'll be right back. We are talking with Lenny Marcus and Eric McNulty, the authors of Your It, Crisis, Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes. There is always something going on. Many times, nobody else knows exactly what you're going through. If you are experiencing pain or loss, even something unexplained that is missing in your life, you'll want to tune into Go For It with host Joe Hausman. Joe and her guests will show you laughter and love. Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Lenny Marcus and Eric McNulty, co-authors of Your It, Crisis, Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most. A great first segment, guys. Lots of good information. Um, now, I want to talk about the book a little bit. Why is leadership personal? I thought this was uh, rather interesting where you talked about it. Uh, I don't know who wants to go first, but why is leadership personal? 
Well, I, um, this is Eric, and I think that it's personal because if we could see all of your listeners right now, we'd notice they all look different, right? They come from different places. They have different experiences, education. They're from different genders and ethnic backgrounds, birth order, all kinds of variables that make them distinct individuals. And our mm-hmm. philosophy on leadership is that you have to live into the role as who you are. So it's not about ticking 10 boxes you read somewhere and trying to live into some mythical superhero image of the perfect leader. Instead, it's understanding who you are, your strengths, your weaknesses, your proclivities, and being the leader you need to be, being who your followers need you to be, but also being true to yourself at the same time. So the extrovert's going to be a bit different than the introvert, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's you know coming up as a millennial leader may act differently than a baby boomer leader. And we think that's okay. There are certain tasks you still have to achieve. You have to be able to, you know, set a direction. You have to be able to make decisions. You have to be able to support people and develop them. So there are certain commonalities of things you have to do, but you'll do them in a very distinct way. So we really encourage you to to explore yourself as a person, to do journaling, and that's why there's journaling questions throughout the book, and mm-hmm. develop yourself as a person. The better you know yourself, the better you're going to begin to understand how other people work and what motivates them, and only then can you be the most effective leader possible. Is that why the book is called Your It? Yeah, in fact, um, um, you know, one of the, just picking up on what Eric said, you know, one of the themes of the book is that as a leader, you have a responsibility. Uh, you're it. You know, some crisis has just happened, and you're it. And, you know, one of the interesting things we've, we've heard from people who've read the book or through our exec ed courses, is they'll periodically write us a note just out of the blue. Uh, I had my Eurit moment today uh, where my boss turned to me and said, uh, you got to take care of something, or a crisis came up, and, and they'll say, well, this is my Eurit moment. And, and by that, it, it, it means that you've got the responsibility. We're all looking to you um, for leadership. Uh, what do we do next? So that's the individual Eurit moment. And then, of course, the word you in English has two meanings. One is singular, you are it, and the other is it's plural. So a leader can look to a group of people, uh, his or her team, and say, team, you're it. Uh, you know, we've really got to come together. Uh, we've got to unite uh, in what we're doing. We've got to uh, leverage uh, the resources and the assets and the talent that we have in the group. So part of the team building uh, that's so fundamental Leadership also is embedded in the word you're it. And that is a responsibility still for the leader to assemble the team, to support the team, uh, to encourage that kind of unity of effort. Um, so it's really a dual responsibility. It's a single responsibility, and mm-hmm. it's a shared responsibility. And that's really the theme of what you're it is all about. So that, that got me thinking, what if you have a team or you're part of a team that really seems to be rudderless and doesn't really have a strong leader. Can some of the things that you're presenting and you've already mentioned, are they for everybody to kind of step up and identify to become a leader? You know, like you don't need a high. Absolutely. Okay. Sorry, Alex, I didn't mean to cut you off. But yes, to anticipate what you're about to say, no, leading is a set of behaviors. It's not just about the person who has the highest rank or is most senior on the team, it's a set of behaviors. It's seeing change that needs to happen and doing something about it. And when we see the most effective uh, 
organizations, the most effective individuals in, in crisis leadership, they build what we call leaderful organizations, that they encourage people to be leading from where they are all the time. It doesn't mean everyone's in charge. It doesn't mean everybody can, you know, sign off on contracts and do whatever. There are certain hierarchical distinctions, right. largely right. around management function. But when you're leading, you need someone that's who can stop the team and say, hey, so where are we going here? What's, what's the job we're being asked to do? Let's make sure we're clear on that. And I think it's, right. it's really important that if, you don't, if, you, if the technical, quote-unquote, leader is not doing that, you stop and ask the question. Let's get clear. What's the objective here? What are our priorities? Because when you've got clarity around that, then people can move quickly. They can move with. They can move in a nimble fashion to actually get things done. Yeah, good. You know, uh, to, to pick up on what Eric said, um, um, just because somebody has a fancy title, we don't necessarily consider them a leader. Um, and, and 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 as Eric just said, it's behaviors. So our definition of leadership is that people follow you. And if people aren't following you, it means that you're really not the leader. And sometimes yes. the people who they're following is something somebody in the middle of the organization or somebody at the front end of the organization can see the crisis and what needs to be done about it, and that person is providing the leadership. I mean, in the whole model of meta leadership, meta meaning looks very, you know, very big at problems and, and solutions. You know, right in the middle of our model. It looks like a circle, but right in the middle is the person of the leader. So um, you have that responsibility, and you're leading in multiple directions in order to bring people on board, um, especially uh, during a crisis. Yeah, I think th- I, I've worked with people that, you know, quote, were leaders, but yet I'd always defer to someone else, you know, who didn't have the hierarchical title that, you know, seemed to be more you know, in line with what needed to be done and, you know, kind of rallied the troops type thing. So that that's why I asked that question. Mm-hmm. So you also yeah, I'm a big advocate yeah, for stopping ahead. to call people leaders until they're leading. Actually, call them executives, call them chiefs, call them directors, call them whatever you want, but don't call them leaders until they're actually leading and someone's following them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You also talk about influence and authority. Now, what do you define both of those as, and what's the difference? So if you think of them on a continuum of authority being what your your role and rank in your organization allows you to do, you have people who report to you, for example, or you may have certain authority the community has given to you if you're a public safety official of things you can do, laws you can enforce and such. And then influence is what you get done by having people want to do it. Um, that you are able to influence them through either your expertise, your ability to rally people together, as you say, rally the troops. And when you think about how most people who are listening today get their jobs done, everyone should get out a piece of paper and write down, how much of formal authority do you rely upon to get your job done? And give yourself a 0 to 10 score. And then think about how much influence required to get your job done. Give yourself a 0 to 10 score. Most people, unless you're in a real compliance function, rely far more on influence than they do on authority. And that's in part because, back to Lenny's um, point about connectivity, you know, it's one thing to lead down to you, the people who work for you on your team. You're the boss. You have some authority over them. But there are times mm-hmm. you need to lead up to your boss, and you have no authority over that person. You also need to get different parts of the organization working well together. You typically have no authority over your peers either. You've got to do it by 
painting a really compelling picture of what it's going to look like to collaborate, uh, shape that shared goal, point out what, what the rewards are if you get it right. And then, if you, like right now in the COVID response, you need to lead beyond your four walls. You need to lead the general public. You may need to lead other countries. You may need to lead international bodies to try and get people to cooperate and coordinate as best they can to solve the problem at hand. So in most of the situations, you're actually relying on your ability to influence. And that comes with being a person of integrity and who is forthright and trustworthy. It comes from having expertise that you're credible. It comes from being reliable. People know they can count on you. So there are quite a number of ways you build up influence. And again, if you take a hard look at the job you do, most of what you do is done by influence. And that's why you need to be cultivating that throughout your career. Is there a difference between, I also work in uh, program and project management. Is that different from responsibility and accountability, or are those folded into influence and authority? Uh, those are folded into influence and authority because at the end of the day, uh, it goes back to what we talked about earlier about responsibility. Uh, you know, One element of your it is that people are looking to you uh, for leadership, or if it's a team, they're counting on you. Um, for leadership, and so uh, whether or not the crisis goes well, whether lives are saved, whether property is protected, really depends on uh, what leaders are doing and what followers are doing in the midst of a crisis. So, yeah, accountability and um, it, it, it's critical to that leadership function that we're talking about with Hurit. With, with um, accountability, is that uh, and responsibility, is that more along the lines of, um, uh, I keep using the word, hierarchical structures. You know, the higher up you go, the more you're responsible and accountable. Does does that make a difference well, when it comes to leadership or not really? Well, it does in that I think that if you're going to lead an effective organization, it's going to be high-performing over time. You need to have an environment of high accountability. And that means you hold yourself accountable, no matter where you are in the hierarchy, for that which you've been asked mm-hmm. to do. Uh, you make clear what you're holding others to account for, on account for, who's responsible for getting things done. Because the, mm-hmm. the more people are aware of what's expected of them and what they can expect of you, the, the more productivity you're going to get. And so it yes. is accountability. Now, when things go sideways, I'm always reminded of a quote from General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who said, the secret to leadership is, taking accountability for everything that goes wrong and distributing the credit when everything goes right. And so if you are in that higher hierarchical position, you do have to take accountability, even if it may be some people below you or next to you who didn't quite do it right, because you want to set set the example that you have a really high bar for accountability. You expect people to be accountable for what they do. doesn't mean you're going to get fired if you screwed up a little bit, but you're going to be accountable, therefore be ready to get better. And then you, you hopefully learn from that and, you know, to be able to take a step forward in your career or your your knowledge, uh, you know, in your own personal uh, development, right? And toward leadership. That's right. That's right. Uh. Now, there was uh, something you had in the, the book that, you know, I was saying for a while that made me, uh, you know, made my uh, niece laugh quite a bit. And can you explain PopDoc? Oh, Sure. I kept seeing it. Yeah, one of the things, uh, one of the biggest problems in, um, in, in when you're doing crisis leadership is, is crisis is situational awareness, and the, the whole field of situational awareness has evolved significantly 
uh, over the years. Uh, I think we all um, look to the to the grandfather, the Boyd, uh, you know, uh, you know, the OODA loop by Boyd, which was observe, orient, decide, and act. And of course, that became a foundation of what we think of as situational awareness um, uh, for, for many people in many different segments: military, for corporate, for pilots, um, uh, uh, commercial aviation. So we, we, we started our thinking uh, along the lines of the OODA loop, but then we asked, well, what is it that uh, leaders need to do that's different than uh, a military command and control pilot? And so um, when we put together PopDoc, we, uh, for, that first, um, for that first letter, instead of observe, which is somewhat passive, you're, 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 you're observing what's going on, we, we decided to use the word perceive. Because what a leader needs to do is not only to see what's going on, but needs to bring some understanding of what do I need to be paying attention to? Where should I be looking? What data should I uh, incorporate? Um, what's important and what's not important? So we put as the first, uh, um, first step of our loop, perceive. The second step is orient. And um, uh, that, of course, was second in the, in the OODA loop, but our orient is look for pattern. Um, look for patterns of behavior, look for natural patterns, for example, if it's a wildfire or hurricane or a tornado, because um, events do happen in patterns. We think our cognitive functioning um, uh, and behaviors oftentimes also happen in patterns. So the O in that first one is about understanding the patterns. And then the, that P is um, predict. And if you've been able to correctly understand patterns because patterns continue, you pretty much can predict what's going to happen next, or you can identify what are the variables that would take the situation in a different direction. So POP is the analysis side. POP is the action side. So there it is the side, just like in Buddha, the original Buddha loop. Um, and he calls it action. We call it operationalized. And the reason being, it's not a single pilot in the air taking an act. When you're in a leadership position, you could have uh, 10, you could have 100, you could have hundreds of agencies uh, looking at you for leadership. So your job is first to make the decision and then to uh, look to operationalizing the decision. That's where leadership uh, comes in. And finally, we put uh, the fee for communication popped up um, because you have to be pushing information out, um, sharing that situational awareness uh, with the people that are looking to you as a leader, and then you've got to bring information in um, so that you can assess whether the decisions and the operations are having that intended effect. And then you start through the pop dot loop all over. It's a continuous process. Uh, we picture it as, a, as an eight, a figure eight with pop on one side, dot on the other, um, like a Mobius loop. And it's a continuous loop. So once you've done something, then you have to perceive it. Did it have the intended effect? If it did, you continue doing it. If it didn't or the situation has changed, then you uh, again analyze, you perceive, you, you orient, and you predict. You can analyze, and then you might change, decide to change what you're doing. An example of pop dot in action was during the 2009 H1 N1 outbreak, we were observing Dr. Rich Besser, who was the acting director of the CDC. And as more epidemiological information was coming in, as they were perceiving more and understanding and orienting to the nature of 
that influenza outbreak, um, they were changing their advisories. And with uh, Rich was a graduate of our National Preparedness Leadership Executive Program. We were proud to have him as an alum. And so what he said is that, you know, every day as we learn more, we will change our advisories. Uh, so we're a great example of they're going through a consistent pop stock loop in order to uh, first share that situational awareness with their team. So they were changing and adjusting accordingly and then communicating that out to the public um, so that people were on board. You might remember the very beginning. They were closing schools for two weeks if there was one case um, uh, in, in that school. And as it continued on, they were changing their advisories as they, they learned, learned more about that outbreak. So the pop doc loop is a way for guiding the leader, for guiding the team, and to make sure that everybody's uh, consistently on board. Well, that's how you, um, using a project management, that's kind of a lessons learned type thing. You, you've got to adapt to what's happening. Otherwise, you're, you're probably going to make your crisis or the situation that you're in even worse. Right, you know, sometimes people call right. after action review. If you're in the middle of a, a, a if you're in the middle of a uh, a crisis, we call it an in the action review, and it's, it's how pop doc works. I know, Eric, if you want to jump in too. I was just going to say that I think it's a real discipline in thinking because we've gotten really good in terms of situational awareness of getting everyone a common operating picture, getting them the same data set of what mm-hmm. you know, how many cases, how many deaths, how many ICU admissions, et cetera. But everybody sees that data differently and, and makes these different patterns and connections in there. So what PopDoc is really designed to do is help you get some insight out of that data set to say, okay, what's really happening here? What's important? And be able to orient to what you have to do next. So we're just trying to encourage people, don't stop at traditional situational awareness. You've got to take the next step of, so what do we do about it? What does this actually mean? Right. And I think that's the best, uh, good spot to end our second segment. Today, we are talking with Lenny Marcus and Eric McNulty, co-authors of Your It, Crisis, Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most. We'll be right back. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Join Chris Epting every week for The Moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. On Read My Lips Radio, producer and host, a.k.a. Radio Red, invites you to eavesdrop on her live, unscripted conversations with smart, savvy, creative people as she discovers what makes them tick, where they find their inspiration, when creativity first became their passion, and how their creative process can inspire the rest of us to think out of the box. Enjoy, a.k.a. Radio Red's always lively, cool conversations with creatives. Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Oh, how those lips can talk. Planning for college? 
Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we are talking with Lenny Marcus and Eric McNulty, co-authors of Your It!, crisis, change, and how to lead when it matters most. Um, I've got another uh, question. Eric, this one goes for you to, uh, to, out to you. Why is connectivity important in leadership? Well, fundamentally, it's because you don't lead alone. You've got followers, whether it's two or 20 or 20,000. You have people and you need them working together. When you look at a response to a complex event, be it something like COVID-19 or even a major hurricane or a major fire, you have lots of entities that have to work together. And success or failure is often determined by the connective tissue between them. Are they working toward the same goal or are they they getting in each other's way? Can they communicate effectively? Can they coordinate where it makes sense? Can they link and leverage resources, people, expertise to get that larger job done? And so one of the things we find is is so critically important if you're going to be an effective crisis leader is to be investing in relationships constantly, building those relationships. I know when we did a lot of research here in Boston, the Boston Marathon bombings a few years back, where we saw the smoothest uh, collaboration among leaders across agencies we had ever seen in any disaster. And that was in part, it was not an accident. That was in part because they had been building relationships for years. The leaders knew each other. The organization had trained together. They had uh, exercised together. They've been through something very similar to this in in an exercise a couple of years prior. And so when you know each other, when you trust each other, when you know what to expect of each other, when you've built that robust connectivity, it makes it that much easier to pivot in a crisis to adapt to changing circumstances. So it's not just what you can do or how smart you are or how big your trucks are. It's what your relationship is with the different entities you're going to have to stand alongside as you try and solve a problem and take care of the public. Now, you mentioned that can take over years. So how do you go about that effectively? Well, you start early. Uh, and uh, start early and often. Sorry, Lenny, over to you. Well, um, 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 the, the penultimate uh, connectivity that we identify that we discovered uh, when we studied the leaders of the Boston Marathon bombing um, is what we call swarm leadership. And uh, this is where the leaders are working together, almost leveraging that innate or inherent um, a drive that we humans have to work in groups who are very social species. And so um, what we found is that the leaders in the Boston Marathon bombings work together extraordinarily well. Uh, there are many different organizations with you know, jurisdictional responsibilities 
um, and they put that aside so that they were truly collaborating uh, with one another. And one part of that uh, uh, that collaboration was based on a foundation of trusting relationships. Those people really knew one another. Uh, In some cases, they had their careers. These were senior leaders that they grew up up together um, in associations and uh, in training. So that, you know, that kind of trust allowed them them to engage together in in a highly unpredictable, um, you know, volatile situation, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of ambiguity. They trusted one another, and that that trust became a bond that helped them uh, truly uh, engage and work together. So if I, I worked for an organization, let's say, how do I, and I'm a leader of that organization, how do I... Do I just send an email or pick up the phone and reach out to, you know, people that I think I might need to work with and, and build a relationship with and go for coffee? Like how, what are your suggestions on how to get that started? Because I know that's kind of a bit of a weakness in the business continuity management industry is dealing with third parties, you know, all these different groups. Yes, and I think, uh, Alex, all, all of the above is the answer to what you just answered. I think that you need oh. to... Think about who, you, who you'd like to know. Reach out. Um, although I will say there is amazing power in bagels and cream cheese with some coffee. <laughs> uh, one, of the organiza- one of the organizations here in Boston, uh, one of the leaders uh, in getting people together across Texas for a long time is a guy named Alan Snow from Boston Properties, big commercial real estate here in, in, across the country, but headquartered here in Boston. And he runs an annual program where they invite in all the local agencies as well as their neighbors, uh, their commercial neighbors, their tenants, and they they run a scenario. And again, it's, the cost to them is a room, which they happen to have because they're a commercial real estate company, uh, and coffees and bagels. And people come, they put a scenario out there, they work it. It's, it's informal. It takes a couple of hours, but it gets people together. It gets them talking to each other. When, when you work the scenario, then they report out, here's how we do it, here's how we do it. You begin to see the overlaps and the gaps. And then you figure out how to fix it and make it stronger. So it really is reaching out, saying hello, finding opportunities to to be with people um, and and just meet them and say, hey, what do you got? What do you need? Here's what I do. Here's what you do. And try those connections are there. But it does take some intentional effort to reach out and begin to forge those bonds and and build those bridges. Interesting. I've always found there's been a bit of weakness in the business continuity management with dealing with public authorities or your neighbors and things like that. And people are kind of scared to reach out to some of these groups. But really, if you take take the suggestions you gave, make it informal and just kind of reach out, hey, let's go for coffee, That that's a good start. That's better than some big formal, you know, gathering and process. Right, well, especially and, and, at an event like this, the COVID-19 response, you've got a huge event. Just reach out and say, so what are you seeing? What's working, what's not? And you begin that dialogue. Right. And, you know, the other thing is um, sometimes people don't recognize the, um, the, the importance of retirement parties and, and other events like Eric just mentioned, um, which is just an opportunity to get to know people, um, to get to understand what their problems are, what they're coping with. Um, it, in some ways, it seems marginal to the core of the work that we're doing, but, but we recognize that when we're building networks and connectivity and warm relationships, those, those, those activities, that socializing, that interaction, um, it is really, really important because as Eric said earlier, leadership is about behaviors 
And mm-hmm. so the better you know other people, the better you'll be able to connect in times of crisis. I think that's good advice for a lot of people, uh, you know, that are quote leaders right now, especially with COVID nineteen. I think that's a lot of really good advice. Now, Eric, I know uh, you have to leave us, so I just wanted to say before you drop off, thank you very much for your time and sharing uh, your expertise with us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, and to all your listeners, uh, stay healthy and thank you for your good work. And Lenny, I leave it in your good hands. <laughs> well, thank you, and happy birthday, Eric. <laughs> oh, happy birthday! Thank Eric. you very much. Thank you. Okay, have a good weekend. So, Lenny, that leaves uh, you uh, to address my uh, next question. You have a, uh, or you you as in both of you, had a really interesting section that you called uh, or talked about, Walk in the Woods. I thought that was a really Mm -hmm. interesting section. Can you explain what you meant by Walk in the Woods? Well, um, the the Walk in the Woods was developed uh, um, 25 years ago. Um, by my colleague Barry Dorn and myself. Barry is one of the co-authors of the URIC book. Um, Barry, an orthopedic surgeon, um, I was a, an, I'm an academic, and we recognized um, that uh, people were having significant conflict, um, that as an orthopedic surgeon, Barry thinks in what's step one, what's step two, what's step three, what's step four. And so we, we, we um, organized uh, the steps of conflict resolution into four steps. Uh, the first step, uh, and we do a lot of mediation uh, and conflict resolution ourselves. First step is when you get a group of people together, when there's a conflict, have everybody go around the table and say, what's their self-interest in this particular conflict? What are, what am I concerned about? What do I hope to achieve? Uh, what do I hope to get uh, by the end of the day? That's step one. Step two, we call the enlarged interest. That's getting people the bigger picture. And so the distinction there is what do you all, everyone in the, around the table, what do you all agree upon and what do you disagree upon? And I've had a number of people in answer to that question say, well, but we're in conflict. We agree about absolutely nothing. And <laughs> um, the response to that, well, maybe, but let's, let's, let's explore further. And we found in observing and assisting people through that conflict resolution exercise that at the end of the day, people actually agree on more than they disagree uh, when they're in the midst of a conflict. They agree on certain values that are propelling them. There, there's agreement that they would like to see some resolution. They agree that the conflict has been um, a distraction to the core work that they're doing. Uh, it could compromise what they're doing in terms of the environment in which they're operating. That they agree upon a lot. And then we say, well, given all that, what do you disagree upon? And Oftentimes, they disagree on some very specific points, but they recognize we actually agree on more than we disagree. The third step we call the enlightened interest, so that after they've established that, they've reframed their understanding of the conflict, and they recognize it's not that they're necessarily adversaries, but actually there's a lot that they have in common with one another. So then we encourage them to go into an imaginative um, uh, exercise, well, what are the different ways that you might resolve this conflict and really um, not be committed to any of those ideas, really just to think very, very creatively about what you could do differently that might help you uh, resolve the conflict. We call that the enlightened interest. And then the fourth step is the aligned interest. Now that we've come up with all of those new ideas, which of those ideas could actually work um, that you could actually agree to in moving forward? And which of those ideas 
you know, real, you know, great idea, but it's not going to see the light of day. And so what we find is that, A, it can be a, a very systematic process uh, for conflict resolution. And the other thing that we find is that when um, people learn to walk in the woods, um, and it becomes part of the culture of how they work together, when a conflict or a problem or an obstacle comes up, uh, they can say, let's do a quick walk in the woods on this. And, you know, they can go through those steps and recognize, okay, here's how we can figure out new ways of working together. And certainly in a crisis, uh, that's, that's very, very relevant. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier H1N1 in 2009, and there was a conflict that emerged between uh, people in the National Security Council at the White House who were doing one kind of modeling and people at the CDC in Atlanta who were looking at the epi data that was coming in and a conflict came up. And so um, I always ask, you do a quick walk in the woods uh, between the White House and the CDC. We're able to get them better aligned. They came up with some new ideas for how to uh, ensure that what the CDC was finding and what the modelers were projecting actually aligned with one another. And it made it much easier for them to go forward with a singular message when they were briefing up to the president and secretary and cabinet, etc. So this mindset of the walk in the woods can be useful for crisis leaders if they know it in that moment, because conflicts do emerge in the midst of a crisis, and you don't want those conflicts to get in the way of your priorities uh, in responding to the crisis scenario. And that's the perfect spot. We've actually come to the end of our show, believe it or not. Lenny, thank you very much for being able to stay uh, to the end and sharing your expertise and time with us. Congratulations on the book. I really appreciate it. And to all our listeners out there, in the meantime, everybody, stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.